0: Reflections on William Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum part 4 Act 4 scene 2 takes place in Pandarus' house with Troilus and Cressida the morning after and you know as you know the morning after is a uh, is a delicate time of uh, confusions and awkwardness and so on. Trollis says, the morn is cold. And obviously, he, Shakespeare's not wasting his ink nor Trollis' breath in order to comment on the weather. <laughs> the morn is cold after all of this hot passion uh, we now have arrived at the morning after, and we find out the morn is cold. And Cressida says, I'll call mine uncle down. He shall unbolt the gates. And Troilus says, Trouble him not. Later on, uh, we find out that the gates are already unlocked. And there's a little implication there that maybe Troilus has gotten up a little early, <laughs> earlier than Cressida and has begun to slowly make his way toward the exit. Cressida says to Troilus, uh, picking up something in the tone of his voice, uh, the, the glaze in his eye or something, she says to him, are you a weary of me? And he says, oh, Cressida, but that the busy day waked by the lark hath roused the ribald crows and dreaming night will hide our joys no longer, I would not from thee which, like all of these awkward attempts on the morning after, uh, sounds pretty good if you don't pause and look at it a little closer. (laughs) uh, He says, essentially, I've got a busy day. (laughs) But that the busy day. (laughs) And then, waked by the lark hath roused the ribald crows, and dreaming nights will hide our joys no longer the bubble has burst, the dreaming night is over, the busy day is at hand, and it seems from Trollus' perspective right here, all the busier, uh, for it, it beckons him to get uh, promptly to work on it, whatever it is. <laughs> a busy day ahead, he said. Quite a change from the Troilus uh, that we saw earlier, and a change exactly in accord with how Cressida had predicted it. Uh, she had she had indicated that you have to uh, you have to be uh, you have to be elusive you have to be uh, the uh, pursued and never yielding because yielding is is giving up the game. Cressida says to him, "Night hath been too brief. Night hath been too brief." And, and if you take that as a metaphor for this whole sort of episode of passionate intoxication, and that's really the night that has been too brief. That little period of complete uh, fascination, depicted in the myth, by the way, by, often by the love potion, which you take and just completely takes over you, and then it wears off at a certain point. So she says, night has been too brief. Trolla says, beshrew the witch. With venomous whites she stays as tediously as hell but flies the grasp of love with wings more momentary swift than thought. Again, convoluted language. Uh, but he's talking about this spirit of the night, you see. And uh, turns out she's a witch. Notice the language here. That She's a witch uh, tediously as hell. Uh, we get the Tedium of the morning after, see, tediously as hell, whereas the night before one could have lingered and lingered and lingered with absolutely no tedium. Now there's a little tedium introduced here. Tediously as hell, but flies the grasp of love with wings more momentary swift than thought. Something has come in and robbed his passion of its very essence. And then as he's trying to excuse himself again, he says, uh, remember, the morn is cold. He says, you will catch cold and curse me. But I think the Shakespearean, obviously from the tone of the rest of the play, the Shakespearean innuendo has to do with catching something else. Catching a social disease and blaming Troilus. See, this is what's, uh, there's a, this scurrilous undercurrent in the, in the whole of this play. You will catch cold and curse me. And Cressida then says, Prithee, Terry. Stay a while. Prithee, Terry. You men will never tarry." What? What? Wait a minute. That sounds like somebody who's been there before. There's nothing of this before. We, we get the impression that, that Cressida is, is pure as the driven snow. And now she's saying... Hey, I've seen this before. You men will never tarry. <laughs> and she says, "Oh, foolish Cressid, I might have still held off, and then you would have tarried. See? <laughs> oh, so much for innocence. You see, it's all appearing now on the morning after. The way it has always been, save for this this uh, this illusion that they've worked themselves into." with the help of Pandorus. And at that point, they hear Pandarus coming from inside the house or from off stage in the play, and they hear him exclaim, what's all the doors open here? And this reflects back on that comment of Trollus. Somehow, somebody had been up opening doors. Uh, slight little insinuation here that Trollus was contemplating just a quiet exit without any of this awkwardness and explain it later, perhaps. Busy day and all of that. And when she hears his voice, Cressida says, a pestilence on him. Now will he be mocking, I shall have such a life. Now she knows he will be mocking because she's been in this situation before. Here he comes and now he's going to mock her. I shall have such a life. He won't. He won't let me forget this for days or weeks, maybe. And Pandarus comes in. How now? How now? How go maiden heads, maiden heads, vir- virgins? How are the virgins this morning? And then he says to to Cressida, "Here you maid, maid meaning virgin. Here you maid. Where's my cousin Cressid?" And she says, go hang yourself. (laughs) Uh, Mocking. Go hang yourself, she says. You naughty, mocking uncle. You bring me to do, and then you flout me too. This is very similar to something we studied earlier in the year, uh, W.H. Auden's New Year letter, in which he depicts the devil as... uh, by the way, this might be a good time to mention this. The the um, Blake said the death of Satan is a is a tragedy for the imagination. Traditionally, evil has been personified in some non human form, and I think because uh, not because it doesn't work its way into the world via us, but because it operates. Independently, seemingly independently of any one individual, and so when you try to locate the, the the locale, when you try to find the locale of evil, you find that it's it's always spread around, and you can't quite put your finger on it. And and the more you and then you as you follow it around, the more it spreads out, and you find that there's this there's this in, intricate web of uh, of associations and interplay that have come to the result in evil. So the idea that there is some uh, that, that evil has an intentionality and that it is beyond any one particular person I think is not only a healthy one for the imagination as William Blake said it was, but it's also also one that's true to the to the actual facts of human existence. There's an appropriate sense in which, We attribute it to the to an to an abstract intentionality because it does seem to have an intentionality. It is sometimes it is predictable. In a way it's predictable. So we can we can discover characteristics of the evil one. We say the evil one, or the devil or Satan or whatever, behaves this way. And we know that he behaves this way because we've seen that pattern develop. So there's a kind of there's a kind of Intentionality or pattern to the way evil works It comes up here because uh, Auden is using the devil, talking about the devil in his poem, and he's saying, "Here's how the devil works." He, and now Auden was interested. He's writing this poem in 1940. He's interested in the, in the political processes of, of uh, that were producing war and chaos in Europe. And he says the way the devil works is that he finds relatively bored uh, clients and he brings them alive with political ideology which is a kind of romantic seduction and he works them up and works them up and works them up and then sets them loose and the predictable course of the political utopia uh, is a kind of hellishness and then they wake up and it's the morning after. And in Auden's poem, the morning after these political utopias run their course is very much like a hangover. And you have these people who were, the, who were the, uh, uh, the supporters of that political, or who were the devotees of that political ideology, having uh, a, a big head and a thick tongue. So he says, uh, Auden says, the devil calls it breakfast in the role of blunt but sympathetic soul. Well, how's our socialist this morning? Exactly like Pandarus here, you see. Interesting parallel. Because both of these have to do with romantic seduction that that posit, in the first instance, a utopia, and on the morning after, uh, demonstrate the facts of the situation, which is something far... Less than a utopia. So here comes the the one who set it in set it in motion is now mocking. I've rearranged the scenes a little bit to, to go through today's uh, uh, conclusion of this play. In Scene Four of Act Four, we're at Pandras' house, and now uh, Trollus and uh, Cressida are. They, they have learned that Cressida is being exchanged with the Greeks for Antenor. So she's having to leave uh, Trollus and, and Troy and go to the Greeks. And so this, this departure is about to take place. And he says to her, The injury of chance forcibly prevents our locked embrasures, strangles our dear vows even in the birth of our own laboring breath. We too, that with so many thousand sighs did buy each other, must poorly sell ourselves with the rude brevity and discharge of one. Injurious time now, with a robber's haste, crams his rich thievery up, he knows not how. As many farewells as be stars in heaven, with distinct breath and consigned kisses to them, he fumbles up into a loose adieu, and scants us. With a single famished kiss, distasted with the salt of broken tears. It's a beautiful speech. It's a beautiful speech. If you go back and read it, you find out that the l- rhetorical flourish of the speech is going in one direction, and at critical places, the diction is going in the opposite direction. The rhetorical flourish is what you hear when you hear the speech. But when you go back, you see these strange things in here about uh, forcibly prevents our locked embrasures, strangles our dear vows, our laboring breaths. The one that really gives it away, I think, is did buy each other, must poorly sell ourselves. And it concludes with, fumbles up into a loose adieu and scants us with a single famished kiss. I think the diction in this speech goes against the grain of the rhetorical uh, tone. In other words, Troilus is still capable of giving a marvelous speech. But before Freud discovered the Freudian slips, he speaks... With little tiny Freudian slips in there, not Freudian slips exactly, but little tiny indicators of what, of a different frame of mind that is underneath the official one that's being presented. One that's a little bit uh, happy to be freed of this responsibility of uh, following through after the uh, bubble has burst. And the opportunity now to to give a, a, a marvelous speech and to bid Cressida farewell uh, is perfect. It absolutely perfect for him. And we'll see how it works into his, uh, his in a sense, his, his resuscitation as a Trojan warrior. Remember, it was his fascination with Cressida. The play starts, he says, unarmed. Why, I don't have anything to do with that fight anymore. And this is the perfect way in which he can resuscitate his warrior status. But before we leave, this uh, fumbles up into a lucidoo and scans us with a single famished kiss. You remember when we studied uh, T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, the major metaphor in the Wasteland, the, the the symptom that Eliot saw that as a symptom of the, of the spiritual uh, disease of our time, spiritual crisis of our time, the symptom was the complications in the relationship in the love relationship and over and over and over again in the in the wasteland Elliot points to that as a serious indication of something going awry so that and, and it is I think a, 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 a problem it's the symptom the same symptom of the same problem. That Shakespeare's dealing with here, although Shakespeare's dealing with it uh, several hundred years earlier, but it simply progressed. So we get here a very elaborate speech with little subtle innuendos indicating that really Troilus is trying to get out of the house, uh, and and the opportunity to, to let Cressida go would be uh, would be at least subconsciously a welcome one. By the time you get to to the wasteland, you have Eliot depicting. The sexual rendezvous between the the the, the uh, typist home at tea time and the small house agent's clerk, which is which is almost purely genital, with no nothing else in between. And when it's over, instead of this uh, instead of this uh, beautiful speech ending with a lo- fumbles up into a loose ado and scants us with a single famished kiss, you get from Eliot. Bestows one final patronizing kiss, and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. Well, I think there's a connection here between Troilus and Cressida, and what Eliot is depicting. Finding the stairs unlit connects also with the mention we made a couple of weeks ago of the of Shakespeare's long poem, The Rape of Lucrece, because in the beginning of that poem he identifies. False desire with lightless fire. So when one finds the stairs unlit, that's another indication that uh, it was false desire. And it did not bring us alive, did not introduce us to the mysteries of love, but simply burst the bubble for us. Now we have a problem. Troilus and Cressida have a problem. Both of them have gotten something of a, a ride out of this passion of theirs, thanks to Pandarus, Pandarus has been the go-between that created a, a triangular relationship, uh, so that so that this thing was kept intense. Cressida uh, held Trollus at arm's length, and uh, Pandarus kept encouraging him, and so you get this obstacle to the desire and. Uh, Hope and disappointment and the whole thing, very intense, and it works swimmingly well until it was sexually consummated, and now Pandarus is is no longer needed. He's out, really out of the picture, except for some mocking voice. the 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 triangular configuration has fallen apart, and you, Trollus and Cressida are left individually. Without that, and one, the thing about, see, here's the other thing, uh, Girard uh, personifies in this, the same way we just talked about uh, personifying the devil, Girard talks about desire as though desire is a, is a personification. Desire uh, will uh, never allow a disappointment to turn into a thorough critique of itself. Uh, so that uh, there's a tendency to try to, to not to learn from this disaster, but to but to replicate it. See? The old saw about you never get enough of what you really don't want. It's very it, being queen for a day is heady stuff, and one wants to or or champion for a day or whatever, and one wants to find some way of reconfiguring that. So, what's interesting to me, and what's never brought out in anything I've ever read about this play, very little is written about this play, by the way, but what's interesting to me is what happens next here. Troilus continues to talk to Cressida, and he says this, Alas, a kind of godly jealousy, which I beseech you, call it a virtuous sin, makes me afeard. Now, when Shakespeare uses these oxymorons quite often, and they always are a flag indicating uh, some real interesting paradox being worked on. So, godly jealousy, which is a virtuous sin. Now, how often do lovers regard jealousy as godly and, to the extent that it's sinful, a virtuous sin? That is all by itself, tells us more than we care to know about the nature of the triangle. Because there's something about the triangle that allows me to prove my love by measuring my jealousy. It's a virtuous sin. And so when someone sees someone jealous, one says, he must be deeply in love. It tells us more than we care to know about the triangle. Now he goes on. But remember now, this is Trollus bidding Cressida farewell as he turns her over to the Greek. And he says, I'm a little bit concerned. In this I do not call your faith in question so mainly as my merit. I cannot sing, nor heal the high Lavolt, nor sweeten talk, nor play at subtle games, fair virtues all to which the Grecians are most prompt and pregnant. But I can tell that in each grace of these there lurks a still and dumb discourse of devil that tempts most cunningly. But be not tempted. Now, take a little closer look at this. this is, we, we, get, we, we get lost a little bit in the Elizabethan expression of, this, uh, of, of these lines. He's saying, well, Cressida, I've been thinking. And I'm just a kind of slow country boy myself. But those Greeks, now those Greeks, they are amazing. They can sing. They can dance. They can behave like courtiers. They're noble. They're they're beautiful. And I just thought you might want to know that. Now, what's happening here? Trolus is shuffling around, you see, looking at the tops of his shoes, talking like a hayseed, and telling Cressida about how interesting the Greeks are. He's playing, he's playing Pandarus. And Diomedes comes in with the other Greeks. Now, Trolus is going to hand over... Cressida to Diomedes, the Greek, who is going to take her back to the Greek, Greek camp. As soon as Diomedes comes in, Troilus says, Welcome, Sir Diomed. Here is the lady, which for Antenor we deliver you. At the port, Lord, I'll give her to thy hand. And by the way, possess thee what she is. As we walk down to the port, I'll tell you a little more about her. Now, what's going on here? Diomedes, you see, is shortly going to be his uh, in, in the triangle with Troalus and Cressida. And he's going to explain to Diomedes some of the better virtues of Cressida on the way down to the point of exchange. And then he says, the next line is, Entreat her fair, and by my soul fair Greek, If e'er thou stand at mercy of my sword, name Cressid, and thy life shall be as safe as Priam is in Ilion. And all the modern uh, uh, presentations of this play, all the modern um, printings of this play that have notes, hasten to, to, to point out that when he uses the word entreat, it means treat. So that he would be saying, treat her fair. I see absolutely no reason to eliminate the double meaning that was there in Shakespeare's time. And Shakespeare's perfectly capable of eliminating it himself if he didn't want it there. And many times in Shakespeare, the word entreat is used the way we would use it, meaning to petition, to invite. And so I think we're supposed to pick up on the double meaning of that. trollus is saying to Diomedes, entreat her fair. I'm going to tell you some, some fetching things about her as we go down to the port and then I'm going to ask you to entreat her fair. Now before the night of the consummation there was this marvelous heady triangle configured and now Pandarus has dropped out of the way and here's Trollus getting another one going. Not just, you see, Pandarus was not a rival but a a go-between in a straightforward way. Very often in Shakespeare the go-between becomes the rival not only in Shakespeare but also in uh, in, uh, in life. There's lots of examples in literature of this of the go-between who becomes interested, you see. It doesn't happen here. Uh, but what happens is that the go-between drops out and another third in the triangle is needed. And this time it's the more intense third. When when one goes from a go-between to becoming a rival or an obstacle, then it's much more intense. See, Troilus is not as intensely uh, connected with Pandarus as he's going to be with... Diomedes, because what it what the, the go between pure and simple go between is going to be replaced by an obstacle or a rival, and then he's going to become intensely preoccupied with the rival. So, uh, I just have a couple of uh, Gerard things to share with you this morning, but here's one of them. In all these triangles, the goal is less to wrench the loved one from the mediator than to receive her from him and to share her with him. The presence of the rival is indispensable. If this rival tries to disengage himself, the subject will do his best to drag him back into the picture. Why? The subject, Girard says, the subject is unable to desire on his own. He has no confidence whatever in a choice that would be solely his own. In other words, the rival's desire endows the desired one with enhanced desirability. And so is needed to keep the passionate quality of this desire in play. As Roy goes on. The subject always wants the other man to play an active role as a go-between, as a mediator, literally between himself and the object. And of course, he does not want to either win or lose, because in either case, the triangular configuration falls apart. So if he were to win, uh, shortly thereafter, to the extent that one's addicted to this this kind of heady, passionate romance, if one wins, shortly thereafter, there must be introduced at one or the other cocktail party's upcoming, uh, another version of it, you see. Uh, So uh, the final uh, Girard observation, no resolution of the deadlock is really satisfactory. The only tolerable situation is for the rivalry to go on. The triangle must endure. The show must go on. Now, Trollus had said, entreat her fair to Diomedes. It worked. Diomedes says to Cressida, Fair lady Cressid, the luster in your eye, heaven in your cheek, pleads your fair usage. And to Diomed you shall be mistress and command him wholly." And to Trollus he says, When I am hence, I'll answer to my lust, and know you, Lord, I'll nothing do on charge. So there you have it. The triangle is already in its basic configuration been put into place. Now, I want to go back now to scene one of Act 4 and notice something about, about Diomedes. In that scene, there's a truce. And the Greeks and the Trojans are mingling. And Paris, the Trojan, says to Diomedes, the Greek, Paris, of course, you know, in contest with Menelaus for, for Helen, and he says to Diomedes, uh, who do you think deserves Helen more, Menelaus or myself? And Diomedes says, both alike, both merits poised, each weighs nor less nor more, but he as he the heavier for a whore. He sees it perfectly clearly. He says, you, it's, it's a total toss-up, it's a useless game." He concludes, like everybody, almost everybody else concludes, that the show must go on. But he sees it perfectly clearly for what it is. He recognize, In other words, he the, recognizes the ludicrousness and the disaster inherent in the triangle as long as he's outside of it. But now he's in it, and a tremendous change takes place in Diomedes. He had said of Helen that whoever wins her will be heavy, the heavier for a whore. You have to, we have to note especially what happens when Diomedes brings Cressida into the Greek camp with all the Greek generals around. They all want to pass her around and get a little smooching in. It's just, uh, it's it's, uh, a revolting scene. Cressida's completely playing along with it, part of it, enticing, playful, flirtatious, the coquette, you see. Menelaus says, and as they're passing her around, giving her a kiss, she's a beautiful young woman. See, Menelaus, I'll have my kiss. Speaking to the to the to the man who's passing her along, I'll have my kiss, sir. Lady, by your leave, and Cressida flirtatiously says, "In kissing, do you render or receive?" And she and he says, "Both take and give." And she, "I'll make my match to live. The kiss you take is better than you give." therefore no kiss, playful, enticing, you see, toying. Ulysses, who is standing aside for the moment, says there's language in her eye, her cheek, her lip, nay, her foot speaks. Her wanton spirits look out at every joint and motive of her body. She's a little seductress and really playing it up in the midst of all of this attention. Now, she has been Helen's understudy in Troy, you see. But in a sense now, I think we could we could say we're getting the next generation. And what you get in the next generation is a further fall-off of the meaning of it all. The difference, one could argue, between Helen and Cressida is that Helen remains more naive about the dark side of this whole thing than Cressida can manage to remain. Cressida has seen too much of it from slightly outside of it uh, to be completely naive. And so Cressida is more world-weary in her gaming. She's She knows more about it and therefore is more manipulative uh, but at the same time, it has less consequence for her. I think you could Im- imagine this, the 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 fall off here between, uh, say, in our society, if you take the kind of popular mythology around romance that was going on in the 50s, say, and, uh, and, and looked at what was happening on high school and college campuses with respect to that romance. And then took a look at the late 80s and the 90s and see what kind of myth of romance is going around and what its actual consequences on high school and college campuses are, what you get is world weariness, the loss of innocence, somehow still able to go through it, uh, but the further breakdown of the distinctions and the prohibitions and taboos that delineated them produces a kind of, of a kind of subtle ennui that eats away at the passion no matter how much energy is put into configuring it scene 2 of act 5 it's designed so that shakespeare can can uh, invoke whatever level of cynical comment he wants in the foreground of this scene Uh, Cressida and Diomedes are uh, toying with each other's passions. Just behind them in the bushes is Troilus and Ulysses. And just behind them, sort of up on a knoll, is Thersites. So everybody, you have any level of comment you want on what's really going on. And Cressida is turning on the charm. She says, sweet honey Greek, tempt me no more to folly. Tempt me no more to folly. And then she says, what would you have me do? (laughs) Don't tempt me anymore. And this is what we, this is the, as I've said before, this is the the line we all want to be able to say that we said. Remember when I said, don't tempt me anymore. (laughs) this <laughs> is like getting it on the record <laughs> so she gets it on the record sweet honey greek tempt me no more to folly. what would you have me do <laughs> i forgot to mention this trollus gave cressida his sleeve as a parting gesture as a token of his love and cressida gave trollus her glove in Elizabethan times the sleeve is detachable and so became a something one gives as a representative of one's arms, you see. So he gives her his sleeve, and now she's with with Diomedes. And she says, she gives the sleeve to Diomedes. And she says, you look upon that sleeve. Behold it well. He loved me. See what she's doing? She's, she's, she is turning up the heat on this triangle. And then she says, Oh, false wench, give it me again. She snatches it back. But see, that just wets his appetite. And he says, Whose was it? And now the question, suddenly there's this question. They were having this romantic interlude. And now the attention turns to this invisible third party. Invisible to Diomedes. Whose was it? He said. Cressida says, It is not matter. I have it again. I will not meet with you tomorrow night. I pray thee, Diomed, visit me no more. And Thersites from the back of the stage says, Now she sharpens. Well said, whetstone. <laughs> and Diomedes, Diomedes says, I shall have it. Because now there is an object which makes it, you see, in the, in the mimetic game, the mimetic game is such a mist of nothingness that the the presence of any kind of little object just brings everything into focus, you see, a, 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 a kerchief, you see, or a ring, or a, any kind of a thing, you see. And now there's this object, this sleeve. I shall have it, he said. And Chris says, what, this? <laughs> What this? <laughs> after after she has just enhanced it, so much. Ay, ah, that he says, and she takes it and begins. You can imagine she's she's uh, caressing it, rubbing it up against her cheek, talking to the sleeve. She says, "Oh, all you gods, oh, pretty, pretty pledge, thy master now lies thinking on his bed of thee and me." And sighs and takes my glove, and give memorial dainty kisses to it as I kiss thee. Nay, she says, Nay, do not snatch it from me, as she holds it out there for him, nay do not snatch it from me. He that takes that doth take my heart withal. And to nobody's surprise, Domedes I mean, snatches it, and he says, I had your heart before, this follows it. And Cressida, you shall not have it, Diomed. faith, you shall not, I'll give you something else. And Diomedes says, I will have it. Now, here's an opportunity. Now, if what he was looking for was the consummation of his lust, he had the opportunity right there. And he turned it down in favor of the triangle. That's essentially what happened here. You shall not have that. I'll give you something else. A lot of lewd implications with that. I'll give you something else. He's not interested. Because the triangular thing has totally gotten hold of him. Diomedes, come, tell me whose it was. Who's the mysterious third over here? Cressida, t'was one that loved me better than you will. But now you have it, take it. Whose was it <laughs> I will not tell you whose. Diomedes, tomorrow I will wear it on my helm and grieve his spirit that dares not challenge it. Suddenly, Diomedes is not thinking about the romantic interlude. He's thinking about tomorrow's battle. This is the inevitable shift, you see, into the, to the rivalry. The preoccupation now is no longer with Cressida. But with the rival, he even, doesn't even know who the rival is, but he's preoccupied with him. And, and um, Troilus speaks observing this, and he says, Well, believe me, when you wear that on your helmet, I'll challenge you. And Cressida says, off to the side, nobody hears. Cressida says, Well, well, tis done, tis past, and yet it is not. I will not keep my word, she says to Diomedes. And he says, Why then, Farewell. Thou shalt never mock Diomed again. And that goes too far, so Cressida has to pull it back in a little bit. You shall not go. One cannot speak a word, but straight it starts you. All of a sudden, you're so touchy. What's wrong? Don't go. And Diomedes is going and coming. He doesn't know what's going on. And he says, I do not like this fooling. He's a simple sort of a guy. I do not like this fooling. Shall I come for this rendezvous tomorrow? The hour, he says. And she says, I come. Oh, Jove, do come. After Diomedes and Cressida leave the stage, Ulysses and Troilus have been watching. And Troilus is beside himself with rage and. Passion. And Ulysses, remember, Ulysses is the one who says, Her eye, her cheek, her lip, nay, her foot, speak this wanton spirit out at every joint. And so he turns, it's not, nothing surprising to him, and he turns to Trollus and he says, May worthy Trollus be half attached with that which here his passion doth express? Which is a way of saying, Are you. Are you seriously that distraught? Is this a surprise to you? Or are you? Are, does it really bother you that much? And Trollus says, "I Greek, and that shall be divulged well in characters as red as Mars, his heart inflamed with Venus. Never did young man fancy with so eternal and so fixed a soul. See what's happened? Everything has now turned, and now the triangle has turned into not the mimetic desire, but the mimetic rivalry on the threshold of becoming mimetic violence in characters as red as Mars, his heart inflamed with Venus. Never did young man fancy with so eternal and so fixed a soul. Now, this is simply the stock Shakespearean formula. You know, Shakespeare cranked them out like he happened to be the greatest poet in the English language, but he cranked them out based on a formula. And the question is, the anthropological question, is whether or not he had the right formula, whether or not he, in, in relying on that formula over and over again, he was seeing the human dilemma in a certain essential uh, way. As red as Mars, his heart inflamed with Venus. That's the formula right there.